0: Hey, we're going to look at Psalm 8 this morning, and we're going to just dive right in. So if you have your Bible, Psalm chapter 8, and we're going to be reading all the verses in Psalm chapter 8. It's a short Psalm, verses 1 through 9. If you have your Bible, flip there. We're going to read through, we're going to pray, and then we'll dive into our teaching and ask God to bless us as we hear his word this morning. So this is the word of the Lord. Through David, who wrote, Our Lord, O Lord, our Lord. Yet you have made him a little lower than God and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, these words are almost beyond comprehension. Your name is majestic, Lord. Your name is above all names. You've set your glory above the heavens. You, God, have framed the heavens. You have placed the stars by your fingers. You place the moon in its place. When we see that awesomeness of you, God, we are in awe. We stand dumbfounded. And yet, God, you are one who cares for us. And we pray now, Lord, that you would care for us in the reading and the teaching of this word. God, that you would actually take our hearts, which are hardened by sin. And would you give us hearts of flesh, changed by your spirit, renewed in your image, that we might praise you and glorify you the way that David did in these words. And we pray this all in the name of our Savior, our King, and our Creator, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So verse 4... In this psalm is actually the center of the psalm. Verse four, and it's a question. You probably noticed that. And it reads, What is man that you are mindful of him? What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? In other words, what David is reflecting on in this psalm is, What does it mean to be a human being? What does it mean to be human? That's the question this poem written by David thousands and thousands of years ago seeks to answer. And on the surface, that question can kind of seem pretty blasé or seemingly unimportant. But if you probe just a little bit deeper into this question, you do realize, actually, this is the question of our day. This is the question of our culture in the 20th and 21st century. After all, everywhere you look in our society, we are confronted with this question. The question of what does it mean to be a human being? Who are we? What is our identity? And it's difficult to read through a newspaper, or read through a web page, or read through a blog post, or get an email from somebody without some reference to human identity, whether that be sexual identity, or gender identity, or identity politics, or racial and economic identity. People say that they want to build up their brand identity. People say they identify as a Christian or they identify as a conservative or they identify as a progressive. So this question of identity, really, when you think about it, is saturated in our culture. And it's the question of our time. Kevin DeYoung, he's a a pastor, he's an author. He put it this way. He said, the issue facing the church and society at large is the question of humankind, the issue of what it means to be human and how we are to understand ourselves. And that's why when we watch movies like Les Miserables, by the way, my wife says that I'm only allowed two Les Miserables illustrations a year. I love that movie. But movies like Les Miserables, there's the story of Jean Valjean. Jean Valjean was once a prisoner. He was captive for a number of years because he stole a loaf of bread to feed his starving family. And then once he's released from prison, he's shown kindness by a country priest in the hillside of France. And he reaches this breaking point of who he's going to be in the future. And he says these words, Who am I? Who am I? Am I the prisoner of the past? 24601, his prison call number. Is that who I am or am I someone else? And we resonate with Valjean in that question, don't we? Because that's our question, the question of our time. Who am I? Am I a prisoner, a slave, or am I free? Am I a changed person? And that question is paralleled even in children's literature. If you read the Chronicles of Narnia, especially uh, the most famous one, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, it's a story of four children who venture through an old wardrobe into a new land, the land of Narnia, and there they're greeted by these creatures that they've never seen before, these fantasy-like creatures who are in awe of them, and they call them sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. See, they thought they were just Lucy and Peter, Susan and Edmund, children of insignificance who lived in London during World War II, But once they got to Narnia, they realized who they actually were. They realized their true identity, that they are kings and queens of Narnia. They are sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. And that's the question that David meditates on here. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? What does it mean to be a human being? And it's a deeply important question if you think about it. In the 20th and 21st century, maybe the most widely held view of who we are as human beings comes from a philosophy known as naturalism. Maybe you've heard about it. Naturalism, simply put, is the view that the natural universe, everything in the natural universe is all that exists and human beings are simply a part of that universe. And if you take that to its logical conclusion, what that means is since the natural universe is all that exists, there is no such thing as a human soul. There is no such thing as love. There is no such thing as consciousness or a human mind. Makes you wonder what naturalists, what's going through their mind, but nonetheless. One materialist thinker and naturalist thinker, he put it this way. His name is Andrew Rosenberg. He said, everything in the universe is merely a collection of subatomic particles humans included. The most we can say is that we are biological organisms, especially advanced, complex animals. Now, my 10-year anniversary is coming up, and I'm thinking about getting my wife a card that says essentially that same thing. Hannah, you are merely a collection of (laughs) subatomic particles. The most I can say about you, Hannah, is that you are a biological organism, especially advanced, a complex mammal indeed. It's gonna be a roaring 10 year anniversary, you can tell. <laughs> and see, hey, because, because we're just a collection of subatomic particles, think about this human beings are no more or no less valuable than any other collection of subatomic particles, which means humans are no more valuable than pets or animals. In fact, human beings are no more valuable than rocks or sand, and you can see why this view of humanity is deeply problematic. Because we live in a time, after all, where we are very concerned about human rights. But you have to ask yourself the question, if we are just a collection of subatomic particles, where do those rights come from? Because if we have rights but we are merely a collection of subatomic particles, then why do we have more rights than a dog or a cat or water or sand or anything else for that matter? Because after all, dogs, cats, fish, rocks, water, they are merely a collection of subatomic particles themselves. So why does a murderer who takes away the life of another human being deserve life in prison, but not the person who breaks a rock? If they're both collections of subatomic particles and nothing more, then why treat one as more valuable than the other? So you see, this question is actually deeply important, isn't it? Who are you? What is humankind? What does it mean to be a human being? And you might think, well, okay, that's the naturalist philosophy, but nobody actually thinks like that. Well, actually, all you have to do is listen to the words of Russia's president calling those who live in the Ukraine nothing more than gnats, something to be squashed. See, we might not say anybody actually believes in it, but when pressed, sometimes we are tempted to think, no, those people over there, they actually are a little bit less human. So you can see, when you probe a little deeper, what started out as kind of a blasé, unimportant question actually shapes human affairs, doesn't it? What does it mean to be human? It's the question of our time, and it's the center of David's psalm in Psalm 8. And he begins this reflection on who is humankind. What does it mean to be human by starting in a different place? He actually starts by reflecting on God. Verse 1, he begins by saying, O Lord, our Lord. How majestic is your name in all the earth? You've set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. John Calvin was a theologian who lived in the 16th and 17th century. And Calvin, in one of his bigger works, he was a theologian, he was a pastor. In one of his biggest works, it was called Institutes of the Christian Religion. He began chapter 1 reflecting on really the question we're looking at. And he said, without knowledge of God, without knowledge of God, there is no knowledge of self. Man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he first looks upon God's face and then he can descend and start thinking and contemplating about himself. So what Calvin is saying is to truly understand what it means to be a human being, you first have to answer the question, who is God? And David follows that pattern here in verses 1 through 2. You see him do that. David begins with this question, who is God? And he reflects first on God's name. You saw that in verse 1. David says, in all the earth, there is no name, there's no name that is more noble, no more excellent, no more majestic than the name of the Lord. And that word majesty is not one that we use very often. In fact, it's probably not used because it's such a lofty and grand title that we don't even use it for the people who hold the highest offices in the United States. Nobody refers to the President as His Majesty. Yes. Nobody <laughs> refers, nobody <laughs> refers to the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court as His or Her Majesty. Nobody does it. In fact, the only time you hear it is usually in places where there's still a monarch, a king or a queen who rules with absolute power. So we never use the word majesty or address anybody as your majesty anymore. Now, sometimes I address my wife as her majesty, and I would encourage all you men to do likewise. But that's beside the point. In all seriousness... The only time you hear the words majesty is when you hear of somebody with awesome power. And nonetheless, that word majestic is the only word that David can describe God as. It's the only word that can come to his mind when he thinks about the name of the Lord. And the name he's referring to is Yahweh. You see how in verse 1... The spelling of Lord changes. It's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's the personal name of God, Yahweh, and it means I am who I am. And if you think of that name, packed into that name are all of these huge, big ideas of who God is. The idea that God is eternal. God is who he is. He has always existed. Before the universe came into being, God was there. In the beginning, God He's eternal. Packed into that name of Yahweh is the idea of God's self-existence as well. That is to say, God is complete in, his, in himself. He does not need anything outside of himself. He is perfectly happy, perfectly holy, perfectly content, perfectly righteous in and of himself. He doesn't need anything outside of himself. When you think of the sun? The sun, right, gives light and life to all creatures on earth. The sun doesn't need light and life given to it. The same is true with God. He is the giver of life. He is the giver of light. He is self-existent and perfectly sufficient in himself. And lastly, wrapped into this name Yahweh, when God says, I am who I am, he's saying he is unchanging, See, we wake up in the morning and we feel sad, and then later on we feel happy, and then later on we feel discontent, and then after that we feel content. But God is the same today as he was yesterday, and who he will be tomorrow, and who he will be on into eternity. God is unchanging in his faithfulness, in his consistency, in his trustworthiness, and in his love toward his creation. So it's this name, the name Lord, Yahweh, that David says, O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You deserve the highest form of address anyone can contemplate. And David screams out in this prayer to God. David also reflects on God's glory. You see that in the second part of verse 1. David says, You have set your glory above the heavens. And when we, we look at the night sky, when we look at the heavens, we know a lot more than David knew about those heavens above. When I was in fifth grade, we used to do this thing, and students, you still might do this today. We had this thing called outdoor lab. In outdoor lab, you would go up to the mountains for a weekend in fifth grade, and you'd have you know teachers go with you, and you would do all these adventures outdoor. Well, I remember I woke up. I went to Windy Peak for my outdoor lab, and I woke up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom, And of course, they didn't have a bathroom in the cabin, so you had to walk outside and go to a bathroom that was across the the yard. And as I went outside, I looked at what I thought was a cloud in the distance, but come to find out that that wasn't a cloud that I was looking at, I was actually looking at the Milky Way, our galaxy. And what I was actually looking at, but wasn't aware at the time, is What looked like this grayish cloud was actually the light of an estimated 200 to 400 billion stars that make up just our galaxy. And that small cloud in the middle of the sky, which took up just this small portion, when you actually estimate this, the best estimates today are that there are roughly 170 billion galaxies across space. That is the vastness of what you are looking at when you look out into the night sky. And yet David says, as he looks up at that night sky, and the majesty and the glory of it, the heavens far above us as human creatures, he says that the power and splendor and glory of God is far above even the most remote galaxy. You cannot even comprehend the glory of God. And the glory of God, right, being set far above the entire cosmos, that only makes sense. Think about it in these terms. If, if God created something that vast, surely he has to be much more vast, doesn't he? You think of my nephew. My nephew was 10 months old. He's a little bit older now. But when he was 10 months old, he was 29 pounds. That puts him in the 99th percentile. I think it actually puts him in like the 114th percentile. He was a glorious baby, to say the least. And to give you perspective, my 36 month old daughter, right now, almost three years old, she's only 33 pounds. So it gives you a sense of how big this baby was. And when you look at that baby, you would say, that dad has to be pretty big. And my brother is pretty big. He's six foot three, 210 pounds. And now, if God is the creator of this cosmos, of this Milky Way, of everything we see in the night sky, how much more glorious is God himself? He has set his glory far above the heavens. This is the kind of God that David is contemplating. But David finally, in answering this question of who is God, he reflects also on God's strength or his power. See, even though God's name is majestic in all the earth, even though he set his glory above the heavens, David also acknowledges, in contrast to himself, he knows there are those who think God is their enemy, and they actually reject God's existence. And David acknowledges them in verse 2. You can see what he refers to them as. He refers to them as God's foes, as the enemy, as the avenger. This is who David is talking about, and in contrast to David, rather than praising the majestic name of God, these people hold God's glory and God's name in derision. And it is very common in our culture that the name of God is not held with the high majesty and honor that it deserves. One example comes from an English comedian. His name is Stephen Fry. Stephen Fry was uh, interviewed on an Irish television station and he was asked Suppose you died and went to the pearly gates and you were confronted by God, what would you, Stephen, say to that God? And Fry's response was, well, if it was the God who created this universe, I'd say, you are quite literally a maniac, an utter maniac. You are a totally selfish, capricious, mean-minded, and stupid God. Now Fry, he's just a comedian. He's a minor example of holding God's name in derision. And there's nothing really that we can say other than, wow. But there are other greater examples of those who hold God's name in derision. If you lived throughout the Cold War, you grew up hearing about the revolution which would change the world. Vladimir Lenin who led the great revolution. Lenin said he would silence the church and breed a generation of atheistic communism that would acknowledge once and for all that God is dead, that he never existed. And Lenin attracted nearly half of the world to follow in his revolutionary philosophy against God. But David says, despite his foes, despite his enemies, God His strength, his power is far superior than any enemy that could come against him. You see it in verse 2. David reflects there, out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. See, David says, in order to defeat the power and strength of God's enemies, God does not need military might. God does not need nuclear warfare. He doesn't need human armies. He doesn't need modern military technology. All God needs is the weakest of the weak. He needs the weakness of the mouths of infants and babies to thwart the plans of his enemies. Think about the West. What was the West's response to the rise of revolutionary Russia and the Soviet Union? The response was to amass a stockpile of nuclear weapons. It was to amass counter-defensive weapons as well, to defeat revolutionary Russia. But God, all he needs to defeat, even his strongest adversary, is the weakness of infants. That's how powerful God is. He defeats the strongest force in the world with the weakest thing imaginable. And David could say that based on personal experience. David had actually witnessed God do this in his own life. He had seen God fight for him in the face of much greater armies and nations. But what David saw in part, we actually get to see in full in the face of Jesus. Jesus, who was the Lord himself, who was Yahweh, the eternal, self-sufficient, unchanging, majestic creator of the universe... He became man. He became a helpless infant. And this might be a detail that as you've been reading through the Bible, maybe you've read through the New Testament and you've read through the Gospel of Matthew, this might be a detail that you maybe just glossed over. But did did you know what went through Herod, King Herod, Herod who was known as Herod the Great, what went through his mind when this infant Jesus was born? We're told that when Herod the king heard of the, birth of Jesus, he was troubled, he was terrified, and all Jerusalem with him. See, why was Herod the Great, the the first king in the great Herodian dynasty, why was he troubled? Well, it was because he knew through the weakness of this infant, through his word and through his life, his kingdom would be toppled, his power would be thwarted, and God would demonstrate his strength. And if you continue to follow the gospel along, if you continue to follow the life of Jesus, you see him repeatedly reminding his disciples, how does God demonstrate his strength? How does God establish his power? Well, he does it through something that is weak and shameful. Jesus demonstrates the power of God through his cross. It was by becoming weak, crucified by his enemies, that Jesus established the strength of God. It was through the weakness of God that God toppled his adversaries that were mounted against him and defeated sin and death, the greatest power and force in the universe. So David, he's beginning by reflecting on this question, what does it mean to be a human being? And he begins by reflecting on this God, Yahweh, the majestic, eternal, self-sufficient, unchanging creator whose glory is above the heavens, but also Yahweh, the God who became man. The God who was reflected in Jesus and who became a weak savior to demonstrate his strength. And it's in light of that God that David says, verse 4, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? And after hearing all that, you would have to expect David to do something like this. You would have to expect David to say, well, we're nothing. We are nothing but specks in this great cosmos. Surely we are a collection of subatomic particles at the edge of the universe. Have you ever seen those after school specials? The one where they show a a nice mom and their children, and they're sitting in the middle of a city park and it's zoomed in on them, they're having this great picnic in the middle of the park, and then all of a sudden the picture zooms out and you see the entire playground. And all of a sudden that family that you once saw their face becomes a little bit smaller. And then it zooms out again to the entire park, and now that family is just a speck. And then it zooms out to the city block, and the family has almost disappeared. And then it zooms out to show the entire city. And then it zooms out again to see the state, and then the country, and then the continent, then the earth, then the moon, then the galaxy, then the solar system. And you get the impression after watching that, we are nothing. We are nothing. We are dust on the outer ring of an immense galaxy that is seemingly infinite. And it's enough to make you think, maybe the naturalist is right. Maybe we are nothing more than a collection of subatomic particles. Maybe we actually are especially advanced, complex animals and nothing more. But David comes in and he says, even though God is so immense as to create all of that, nonetheless, he says, human beings are the special object of God's affection. The creator of the cosmos, he says, thinks about humankind. He is actually mindful of humankind. He goes on to say that he cares for his human creation. You know, the first sermon ever preached at Deer Creek Church, this was 35 years ago. You know what the title of that sermon was? It was you matter to God. And that was a counterintuitive idea then. It's a counterintuitive idea now. Because we do think that we're nothing. But this psalm confronts us with this counterintuitive idea that you matter to God. In fact, what David says first is that human beings, us, we are the crown of his creation. Take a look at verse 5. David says, Yet you have made him a little lower than God. And crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. See, everything that God's created, everything material, that is mountains, that is the sea, the stars, the sky, the sun, all creatures, mammals, fish, birds, insects, all immaterial things, meaning angels and spirits, all of creation, out of all of that, there is only one being that is called the image of God. There's only one being that receives the crown that God has given and reflects the same glory of God himself. And it's you. It's human beings created in the image and likeness of God. And David isn't pulling this idea out of thin air. He actually draws it from the opening pages of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1. And there's two things to note when you look at Genesis chapter 1. The first thing is that when God creates living creatures, he calls on the earth and the sea to do his work. So he puts it this way. This is Genesis chapter 1, verse 20. He's creating sea animals. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. And then just four verses later, God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. But when God creates humankind, when he creates man, he doesn't call on earth or sea or anything else. God says, verse 26, let us make man. God immediately creates humankind. He immediately gets down and creates humankind in his own image. He says, let us make man. And then he gives them this crown. He says, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven. Over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Nothing in creation gets this bestowed title made in the image of God. Humankind is the crown of God's creation. Humankind is the special object of God's affection. My daughters, you see them here at the beginning of the service. Uh, Annie and Jane, they're two twin, close to three-year-olds. And they have these things that you'll see them carrying around on a Sunday morning. their blankets, and they call them their my And these my our daughters love and cherish their my not because they are lovable. They are not lovable. Let me tell you, they are torn, they are tattered. They have what I only hope... And I pray is brownie batter on them. And they drag them on the bathroom floor behind them. And then immediately after, they're putting them in their mouth. I mean, it's absolutely disgusting. But they love them not because they are lovable, but simply because they love them. They love them because they love them because they love them. They have a bestowed worth, a worth that cannot be earned back toward them. And the tragedy in our world, in our age, is that we have forgotten that we have this bestowed worth given to us by God. We have forgotten who we are. In a culture obsessed with identity, we've never been so confused about what it actually means to be human, that we are creatures with a bestowed worth created in the image of God. And our culture has always faced this dilemma 200 years before our lifetime which is just a fraction in the whole course of human history. 200 years before our lifetime, African Americans in the United States were still considered three-fifths human by the United States. Human, sure, but only 60%. See, they had forgotten that to be human and to have worth is not determined by the color of your skin, but we have a bestowed worth printed on us by the word of God who says we are made in his image. We are the crown of his glory and honor. And today, we are so tempted to determine our worth and our identity based on things, not the color of our skin so much, but we fall into similar traps. Traps that we create to base our identity and our worth on what we can achieve. Traps that say our worth and our identity is determined by how much money we make or how much success I have in my career or how many letters are behind my name or how many looks that I can attract or how many likes I can receive. But as anyone who has actually tasted success in those areas will tell you, those are traps and nothing more than traps. David Brooks, he's an author He's a New York Times bestseller. He writes for the New York Times. He is at the pinnacle of what it means to have success in his personal life and in his career. And he wrote an article recently, Five Lies Our Culture Tells Us. And he says the first lie that we have to deconstruct in our own lives is that personal success is fulfilling. He says this is the lie we foist on the young. In their tender years, we put the most privileged of them inside a college admissions process that puts achievement and status anxiety at the center of their lives. That begins advertising's lifelong mantra if you make it, life will be good. But Brooks continues everybody who has actually tasted success can tell you that that is just simply untrue. He said, I remember when the editor of my first book called me to tell me it had made the bestseller list, and I remember the feeling nothing. I felt nothing. The truth is, success spares you from the shame you might experience if you feel yourself a failure, but success alone does not provide positive peace or fulfillment. If you build your life around it, your ambitions will always race out in front of what you've achieved, leaving you anxious and dissatisfied in the process. So we need to remind ourselves. We have a bestowed worth given by God, a God who says you are the crown of God's creation. You are the special object of his affection, and we almost can't remind ourselves of it enough. In fact, before I put my kids to bed at night, I tell them a blessing. It's a blessing from the Bible. We say it here almost every Sunday. It's, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace forever and ever. Amen. And now a lot of those words are pretty big for four, five, six, and seven-year-olds. But my daughter, Lainey, the other night asked the question, Dad, what is countenance? It's not exactly countenance. But I went to her and I said, Lainey, this is countenance. It is the smiling face of a father shining on you because he is mindful of you and he cares for you, not because of anything that you can give him, but because you are his. Friends, I need to tell my kids that truth over and over and over again to remind them of that over and over and over again, because I know if they're anything like me and anything like us, there will come a day when they forget it. That God is not pleased with us because of what we can do for him, but he is pleased with us because we are creatures bestowed with the crown of glory and honor. We have nothing to give God. He gives us this bestowed worth. And he calls us his image bearers. And I think maybe the reason we're so apt to forget who we are is because we don't think this could truly be true about us. The idea that we're made in God's image to reflect his glory and honor After all, David's reflecting on Genesis 1. He's reflecting on creation then, but we know better than anybody else, we know that those things don't always resonate with what we look inside and see of ourselves. We know that those things aren't always true of us. One pastor friend of mine, he was recently sitting down with a girl. She was about 25 years old, and she had fallen into sexual sin. And this pastor friend of mine, he was trying to comfort her and he was trying to understand the situation a little bit better and he wanted to remind her of who Jesus was and she had become convinced though that she had utterly ruined her life and her relationship with God and she said to my friend, how could God love a person like me? He maybe could have loved me then but I don't see how he could love me now. Everything that I once was is no longer true. See, everything we once were does. It it seems utterly lost. We look in ourselves and we say, we're not crowned with glory and honor. We are not good reflections of God's image in our world. But again, what David saw in part, we get to see in full by looking to Jesus, who is our Savior. We get to look not just back to God who created us, but we get to look to Jesus who saved us. And What the Bible says is that everything we have destroyed, everything we have lost, Jesus comes to redeem and restore in us. In fact, that's what the New Testament says. When it talks about this psalm in the New Testament, the author of Hebrews puts it this way. He refers to this psalm referring to Jesus. And he says, now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in, subject, in subjection to him, but we see him for who a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. And now see, that's a mouthful. But in summary... What the author is saying here is that through Jesus, by his sacrificial death on the cross, he has redeemed and he has restored everything that we have tarnished and destroyed because of our sin. And no matter what we have done, he promises to remake us into what we were always supposed to be. There was an old pastor of mine when my wife and I lived in California. He always used this illustration to remind us of this truth. He said, imagine you grew up and you felt like, I just don't fit in my family. Anybody else have that, uh, that feeling? Children, don't raise your hand. We feel like we don't belong in our family. And he says, now imagine one day you went into your attic and you opened up this chest. There was a plenty of dust on it. You blow off the dust. You open up the chest in your attic. And there you see these pictures that are adoption papers. And these pictures that show that Your true family is always what you suspected. Your father is a doctor, and your mother is an Olympic athlete. And you see, it's true. I don't belong to these people. This is my true family. This is who I truly am. And see, it was always true of you. You just forgot it. It was always true of you. You were always made in the image of these people, but you forgot it. You never knew. You needed to be reminded of it. And friends, through faith in Jesus, through faith in Jesus, you are not just anybody. You are a redeemed and restored child of God. The Savior, Jesus, has brought back restoration and redemption for what you lost and what you destroyed. Friends, through faith in Jesus, you are the crown of God's creation. Not because of what you have done, but because of what he has done in your place through his sacrificial death on the cross. I'll close on this. There's this documentary that went uh, on Netflix several years ago. I don't know if you can still get it on Netflix, but the title of it is Wasteland. And it's the documentary of an artist, and he goes into these remote third world countries where people are in abject poverty. And they're in so much poverty that they have to go to the landfills in order to get their food for the day and pick up basic things just to sustain their living. And he interviews these people and you can just see that they know they are at the bottom of the food chain. They are at the bottom of the ladder. And what this guy means to do is in these interviews show that even though they see themselves as this picture of a ruined and destroyed people never to be seen as beautiful or worthy, what he does is he takes all the trash that these people have collected. And he turns it into a brilliant picture of who they are. He takes all of this trash and he makes a self-portrait of these people. And when they see it for the first time, tears stream down their faith because for the first time in their life, they have heard, you are beautiful, you are worthy, you are enough, and you are loved. Friends, in Jesus Christ... The ruins of your life have been restored and redeemed. He is making you more in the likeness of his son, Jesus Christ. And he will one day look upon you. And he will see not your tarnishment, not what you have destroyed, not your sin, but he will see the beauty and glory of Jesus fully brought to life in you. You are the crown of God's creation. Now you understand why David finishes the way he began. O Lord, our Lord. How majestic is your name in all the earth. You are the creator and savior. The one who made us in the image of God and will restore us in the image of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that this is true of us, that you look upon us as not just people who have tarnished and destroyed our lives, but you look upon us and you see the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And through faith in him, God, we have the great privilege of the glory and honor of Jesus given to us freely by grace. And Lord, we pray, would this truth penetrate our hearts? Would you remind us of who we are? We are image bearers of God, reflecting the true image of you, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Heavenly Father, we pray now as we sing back to you that we would acknowledge your majesty, we would see how big you are, but also how close you are and how much you love us. We pray this all in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.